This is Steve Lawson, and I want to welcome you to Men Who Rock the World. It's an exciting podcast that studies the lives and the legacies of great men in centuries past who have been used by God to turn the world upside down. Uh, These men are reformers. They're Puritans. They are preachers during the Great Awakening. Uh, They have been used even during the evangelical era. And so I want to be able to, to introduce you to them and for you to come under the uh, the influence of their lives. Um, I have had the opportunity to write biographies uh, on many of these men and to spend a year just researching and, and learning about how God used them so mightily. I have the opportunity to, to lecture in seminaries and to speak uh, in church pulpits on, on these great men, and I've even visited on-site leading tour groups to where really history was made. The importance of knowing church history cannot be overstated. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that other than the Bible itself and theology, that the most important thing that a Christian should know is church history. So I want you to join me in this podcast in learning how these great men of faith were so greatly used. God bless you. We are going to have one tremendous time this weekend. What we're going to look at tonight and what we're going to look at tomorrow morning, my prayer is that God will use this to greatly motivate you in your Christian life, to inspire you, to encourage you, to inform you on some of the greatest men who have ever walked on planet Earth. We have four men that we're going to look at in this conference. And John Piper has said, my best friends are dead men. I can go with that because they have lived lives that uh, have been elevated by the grace of God to have an influence upon the flow of human history. And so in this conference, I want to introduce you to four of my best friends. Martin Luther, William Tyndale... John Calvin, and John Knox. These are like the four horsemen of the Reformation. And as we will walk our way through them, we'll move from the German Reformation with Martin Luther to the English Reformation with William Tyndale, to the Swiss Reformation with John Calvin, to the Scottish Reformation with John Knox. And there is this unfolding story of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, which was larger than any one person or any one event. It was uh, really the result of uh, a series of events involving a series of men, and yet they are uniquely interrelated, almost like a domino effect. And in the course of this conference, I want to walk you through Uh, this unfolding drama of the Protestant Reformation, which took place in the 16th century. It was the noted historian Philip Schaff, writing in his History of the Christian Church, at the beginning of Volume 7, the German Reformation, Schaff writes this, The Reformation of the 16th century is next to the introduction of Christianity the greatest event in history. Now, just, just pause for a moment. See law. Just, just pause and, and, and meditate on that, on that sentence. I want to read it again. 
the Reformation of the 16th century is, next to the introduction of Christianity, referring to the first century, the greatest event in history. Now, if that is so, and I believe that it is, then what we're looking at in this conference is not of secondary importance. Uh, it's really of primary importance historically. He goes on to say that the Reformation marks the end of the Middle Ages. It marks the beginning of modern times. So it stands at the intersection of the medieval period and the modern times. And he writes, starting from religion, meaning its birth was in the church, its birth was in the preaching of the Word of God, its birth was in religion, it gave directly or indirectly a mighty impulse to every forward movement. In other words, as a result of the Reformation, its effect upon commerce, law, medicine, education, politics, it had a far-reaching effect upon the entirety really of Western civilization. And I think that the case can be made that these four men are the four dominant influences in Western civilization that laid the foundation really for the establishment of what was to become the United States of America. So we need to know who these men are, and we need to know how they were used. Now, by way of introduction... Tonight, we're going to look at just Martin Luther. But by way of introduction to Martin Luther, I want to set the context for the times in which the Reformation began. Uh, we say in real estate, there are three things that are most important. Location, 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 right? And when we, say, when we study the Bible, three things most important. Context, context context. We say a, a text without a context is a pretext. And so to understand what the Scripture is saying, we need to understand the immediate context and even larger context in which something takes place. Well, the same is true for the Reformation. So before I just immediately go to the birth of Martin Luther and tell you about his upbringing, I want to frame the picture. I want to set the context for the Reformation. And I want to tell you ten things about why the Reformation was so desperately needed because the preceding thousand years were a period of darkness. There's a reason why they called it the Dark Ages. And there was great darkness, spiritual darkness, that enveloped Europe and the island of England and Scotland. And I want to tell you ten things right now, Just and I want to move through these rather quickly. Number one, the Bible was allegorized. Uh, church leaders were looking for hidden meanings uh, in the Bible that took them away from the true meaning of Scripture. Uh, they twisted the Scripture like the proverbial wax nose to, to, to make it say whatever they wanted it to say. And so the Reformation will be a return to the proper interpretation of the Bible, 
to let the Bible speak for itself. But for a thousand years leading up to the Reformation, there was the allegorizing of the Bible. Second, tradition was elevated. Uh, Spiritual leaders in the church appealed to the past. Rather than appealing to the Word of God, uh, they appealed to to councils and, and creeds and church fathers for their beliefs. And the precedence of, of earlier centuries rather than pointing to chapter and verse in the Word of God. Third, there was papal authority. And over the centuries, the Pope rose to a position of supreme authority. In fact, he became known as the head of the church. And he became the supreme interpreter of the Scripture and was thus elevated above the Bible. Fourth, religious superstitions. Instead of Scripture, pagan myths and fables were told in the pulpit with regularity. Old wives' tales uh, prevailed. Uh, There were pilgrimages to see relics. And the the church was ensnared in a world of of fabrications and superstitions. Fifth, the worship service was in Latin. The common people didn't even understand Latin. Latin was the language of the scholar. Latin was the language of the the classroom. And the average farmer and and merchant and and hardworking uh, common person didn't even understand Latin, so as they come to the worship service, they are unable to intelligently receive what was being said. Sixth, the pulpit was moved over to the side. Right now, there's a reason why this pulpit is right in the center of this building. One, it's so that every sight line intersects right here and with a Bible. But it was a statement that the pulpit is to be front and center in the life of the church, at the very epicenter of the church. Well, leading up to the Reformation, this pulpit was moved over to the side. In fact, there were two different pulpits, and in its place was put an altar, and on the altar was the mass that was being served. And it was an intentional statement that the Bible is no longer front and center, and instead there has been a cheap substitute. So that leads to number seven, mass in the center. Uh, The mass was elevated to a means of dispensing redeeming grace. Although tragically, there was never any grace in the Catholic Church. There was not one drop of grace, not saving grace not redeeming grace, and yet the, the mass became perceived to be the literal blood of Christ and the actual body of Christ, and that was a part of all of their superstitions. Eighth, there was a scarcity of Bibles. Uh, very few priests had even ever seen a Bible, and the common person could live their entire life and never even lay their eyes upon the written Word of God. Gutenberg will not invent the printing press until about 1454. And before that, 
there are simply handwritten copies, and they are very few and far between. And so this is the world in which the Reformation will take place. Let me give you two more. Uh, Ninth was the inferiority of the Latin Vulgate. That was the translation that they had before the Reformation. And it was a corrupt text, and it was not precise. It was an inferior copy of the Bible, and it too was in Latin. And then tenth and finally, the gospel was corrupted. There was no longer the preaching and teaching of the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. There was now conspired by men uh, a religion of human works and self-righteousness in order to find acceptance before God, and the grace of God was forgotten and forsaken. And so for the thousand years leading up to the Reformation, really from the time of Augustine until Martin Luther would step onto the scene, there was a spiraling down. Now, there should be some encouragement for us tonight in this, and here it is. God never has to have the circumstances just right in order for Him to work. And it is in the darkest times that the light shines the brightest. In fact, the motto of the city of Geneva, Switzerland, where John Calvin preached, the city motto became, after darkness, comma, light. That it would be in those darkest hours of human history, that the light would suddenly come shining and bursting upon the scene. The, the, the darkness can never extinguish the light, but the light can extinguish the darkness. Now, this should encourage us tonight because, you know what, we're living in some dark times, are we not? I don't know if you've been watching television, reading the newspaper, maybe you've been on another planet, I don't know. But, but things are spiraling down at mock speed. Now, this is not the world in which most of us grew up in. And it wasn't even a Pollyanna world that we grew up in, but we are literally disintegrating at such a rapid pace. And it would be easy for us to just throw up our hands and, and say there's no hope. Well, we know as long as there's God, there's hope. And as we study church history, we see that it is in those darkest hours that God often does His greatest work as He raises up men and women to champion His Word. So, this is the setting for the Reformation. It was a dark day. It was, it was, there was the veil of midnight blackness that enveloped Europe and England and Scotland in the days leading up to the Reformation. And in the sovereignty of God, God began to put certain things in place. God had the printing press invented in 1454 by by, uh, Gutenberg. And Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. And there were new worlds that were opening up. And people began to think, and people began to dream, and people began to look around, and there were new new horizons that were beginning to open up. And it is in that 
context that there steps onto the scene the first reformer. His name was Martin Luther. So, let's talk now about Martin Luther. He comes first because he was the one whom God used almost like an, uh, an icebreaker ship that goes first, that breaks up the frozen tunda so that the other ships can come in behind. Martin Luther is the man who goes first. Every Reformation and every revival and every great awakening begins with a lonely figure. One person who is raised up by God to sound the note, to lead the charge, to preach the Word, to lead out. And that man in the Reformation was Martin Luther. He was the father of the Protestant Reformation. He was a giant of church history. Uh, He has been described as an ocean, meaning just the immensity of all that he accomplished. And with each of these reformers, it can be said, they do the work of 20 men, 30 men, 40 men. They are industrious. They are indomitable. They are hard-driving. And they are mightily used by God. He was a titanic figure of enormous proportions. Uh, He was a German Hercules, if he will. Uh, He's been called the Evangelical Atlas because as he stepped onto the scene, he was used by God to turn the church or parts of the church back to the Word of God and back to the truth of Scripture. And as he did so, he was so bold, he was so undaunted, he was so fearless that the force of his convictions and his fearless personality was used by God to turn the tide of human history. Large doors swing on small hinges, and history pivots on certain individuals who God uses in a great way. So let's talk about Martin Luther. And you have an outline in front of you, and you can follow uh, as it's put up on the screen on, on both sides. Let's just survey the life of Martin Luther. It begins, he was a Catholic son. He was born on November the 10th, 1483 in a German home in Eisleben. His father owned copper uh, mines. He was a copper miner who worked his way up to purchasing other copper mines. And so he was a man of some means. And he purposed that his son would become um, a a lawyer and have a better life than, than what he had had. And he was willing to use his money and his resources so that his son would go to college and become an attorney. Uh, His mother was very Catholic, very pious, very superstitious. And one thing that we learn about these reformers is they were all born in a Catholic home. Basically, there was no other church to be born in. You were either Catholic or you were outside the church. There wasn't a a Baptist church 
or a Bible church down the road that you could go join. And so Luther was born in a Catholic church, in a Catholic home. His father was hardworking. His father was strict. His father was stern. And he was pushing his son to get ahead in the world. So from Catholic son, he became a brilliant scholar. And Martin Luther began to pursue his education with the purpose to become an attorney. At age 14, he entered college. That was common back then. Uh, He went to the University of uh, Eisenach and then the University of Erford, and it was at the University of Erford that he earned his bachelor's degree, he earned his master's degree in 1502 and 1505, respectively. And in these formative years while he was in college, it became apparent that he had a brilliant mind and he had a brilliant intellect. And let me tell you something else about all these reformers. They were all brilliant men who gave their intellect and gave their mind to the cause of God and the gospel. Once they were saved, they used their brilliant mind to study the Word of God, to translate the Word of God. And I say that to exhort all of us here tonight, that we must be those who love God with all of our minds, and we must have a renewed mind, and it will be our depth of understanding of the Word of God and its application in our lives that will determine really in large measure, the impact of our lives upon this world. Well, Martin Luther was a brilliant man, and when he finished his master's, he began immediately to go to law school. And as he was studying in law school, he had been there one month, he went home for the weekend to be with his family, and as he is returning from home back to law school, he found himself in the midst of a thunderstorm. And there was a bolt of lightning that flashed, and it knocked him to the ground. And he was terrified. And it was like his whole life passed before him in that moment. And he made a brash vow, and he just cried out, and he said, help me, Saint Anna. She was the the patron uh, saint of, of the copper miners, that his father was a copper miner. So he just cries out, help me, St. Anna, and I will become a monk. And so on the spot, as he's laying on the ground in the middle of, out in a field, he commits his life to become a monk. And the reason he does so is he is terrified of dying, as he almost did, and standing before God and he knows that he has no basis to enter into heaven. So, two weeks later, he became an Augustinian monk. That is in 1505. At the age of 21, he entered the most rigorous and austere Augustinian monastery. It was like signing up for the Marines. He he wanted the hardest, the toughest, Uh, The greatest challenge, because in Martin Luther's mind, he's unconverted, he's lost, he's religious but lost, 
He wants to earn his way to heaven. He has this fear of dying without any certainty of heaven. And Martin Luther said in his writings, when I was a monk, I wearied myself greatly for almost 15 years with daily sacrifice. I tortured myself with fastings and vigils and, and prayers and other various rig very rigorous works. I earnestly thought to acquire righteousness by my works. He was so committed to this that he almost killed himself as he punished his own body and sought with self-denial and self-abuse uh, that he would somehow commend himself to God. He goes on to say, I tortured myself with prayer, fasting, vigils, and freezing. He would spend the night outside without a blanket, sleep through the night when it would be at the point of, of freezing, thinking that God would pay attention to his earnestness to commend himself to God, that if he could just suffer some more, God would surely see his sincerity. And what else did I, did I seek by doing this but God, who was supposed to note my strict observance of the monastic order and my austere life? I constantly walked in a dream. In other words, I was living a fantasy and lived in real idolatry. For I did not believe in Christ. I regarded him only as a severe and terrible judge. Close quote. So no matter how much he sought to earn salvation, Martin Luther could not ever be good enough. In 1507, at age 23, he entered the priesthood, which is a notch above being a monk. And the reason that he did this is he thought he would be graduating up the ladder to be somehow closer to God, and if he could just be a little closer to God, maybe he could pull himself up from this level of being a priest. And well, when Luther celebrated his first Mass, and you understand that the Catholics actually believe, in fact, the priest will say, hocus pocus, literally. And suddenly, the elements turn from bread and wine to the real body of Christ and the real blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that is continually flowing from His wounded side. And so, as Luther comes to participate now in his first Mass, and by the way, no layperson could take the Lord's Supper. Only someone who is a priest and someone in the ministry could take of the Mass. As he came to the altar, and as he held the bread, and as he held the cup, believing it was the actual body of Christ, the actual blood of Christ, what blasphemy! He almost fainted, thinking that he had the actual blood of Christ in his, in his hand. He said, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, who am I that I should lift up my eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? For I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I am speaking to the living, eternal, and true God. Close quote. He understood how sinful he was. 
He understood how holy God is, but he did not understand how to find acceptance with a holy God, sinner that he was. And so as an unconverted man, he continued to strive after a measure of righteousness in order to be accepted by God. He began to teach theology. He had no peace. He was wearing out the others in leadership in the monasteries and in the, and in the, uh, uh, the circle of the priests because when he would come in to confess his sin, he confessed his sin. And he would be there for an hour, two hours, three hours. I mean, he's confessing what he did in junior high school. I mean, he, he's just putting it all out there. And the, the, the priests who would receive his confession, they would, they would want to turn away when it was Luther coming because we're going to be here all night. Luther had no peace with God. So they said, here's what Luther needs to do. We need to send him on a trip. The trip will do him good. We're going to send him to Rome. We'll send him to the most religious city on the place of the earth. We'll send him where the Pope is. We'll send him where the cardinals are. We'll, we'll send him where all the relics are. And he will calm down. He will feel better about himself. And, and if he'll chill out, we can chill out. So they, they sent him to Rome. And as he made this official trip to Rome, it had the very opposite effect of what they intended. Because as he came to Rome, he saw the immorality and the fornications of the Catholic priests. He saw the superstitions on steroids in Rome. He saw the worst of the Roman Catholic system, uh, the relics that were there in Rome. And when we say relics, we're referring to supposed religious icons from the past that people will come and pay money to see, and somehow that will put more righteousness into their bank account before God. And so as he's there in Rome, he sees supposedly the rope with which Judas hung himself. He saw supposedly milk from the breast of the Virgin Mary. He saw supposedly the burning bush that Moses stood before. He saw supposedly the chains of, of the Apostle Paul. He saw supposedly one of the coins that was paid to, uh, to Judas for betraying Christ. And as he stands in long lines with all of the other pilgrims to view these religious artifacts, there's no change in his heart. There's no removal of the guilt. There is no sense of acceptance with God. It's had the opposite effect. He is spiraling down even more. And so he goes to a main church there in Rome, to the uh, Lateran church in Rome, where they have supposedly the very steps that led up to Pilate's judgment hall, the very steps that Jesus Christ ascended when he stood trial before Pilate. And what they said in all of their vain religiosity and in their vain superstitions, that if you would crawl 
up these steps. They're called the Scala Skanta, the Holy Stairs. And with each step, if you'll kiss the step, and if you will repeat the Lord's Prayer, and if you'll do this 28 times, and when you get to the top, you will have made more deposits into your account to try to work your way up to God. And I've been there. I was there just a couple of years ago, and there are still people on their hands and knees in the bondage of spiritual blindness, crawling up these same very stairs that that Martin Luther stood before and seeing poor people, seeing widows, seeing crippled, still crawling up these steps as if it is a stairway to heaven to work their way up. So Martin Luther, he gets on his hands and knees. He begins to crawl his way up these stairs. He says uh, the, the Lord's Prayer with each step, and when he gets to the top, he turns around and he looks down, and he sees all these people in waves crawling up, kissing the steps, And as he looks down, he came to the conclusion that this is for naught. He said, at Rome, I wish to liberate my grandfather from purgatory, and went up the staircase of Pilate, praying the Lord's Prayer on each step. For I was convinced that he who prayed this could redeem his soul. But when I came to the top step, the thought kept coming to me, who knows? whether this is true. Well, he knew in his heart this was not true. And so he returns back to Germany despondent, discouraged. He does not know God. He has no no acceptance with God. And as he returns to Erfurt, he is transferred to the University of Wittenberg. I had the privilege of being at the University of Wittenberg just a couple of months ago and being able to preach the Word of God there and be able to minister there. And it it is still there in a functioning university. And Martin Luther, as he becomes uh, begins to teach at the University of Wittenberg, he will be there for the rest of his life. He will be there for 34 years. He receives his Doctor of Theology and he becomes professor of Bible at the University of Wittenberg, and this is what he teaches. He teaches the book of Psalms. He teaches the book of Romans. He teaches the book of Galatians. He teaches the book of Hebrews. He is religious up to his eyeballs and has no saving relationship with God through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what an example this is to us, that it is possible to be to have a head full of Bible and to have no saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. At this time, Luther begins to preach, and he filled the pulpit at the college church. He is still unconverted and does not know the Lord. And so while he is here at the University of Wittenberg, And while he is preaching the Word of God, and while he is fully engaged in serving God, yet far, far away from God, there comes a man, Johann Tetzel, into Saxony, which is a part of Germany. 
He has been sent by Rome because they need more money. Imagine that. And they want to build bigger buildings. And they're going to ride on the backs of the poor and those who are superstitious. And they send Tetzel into the area, the basic area, where Martin Luther is. And Rudolf Hines writes, Tetzel was a superb salesman and knew how to arouse public interest. He started by entering town in a solemn procession with a papal coat of arms and a bull of indulgence, uh, borne aloft on a gold-embroidered velvet cushion. A cross was set up in the marketplace, and Tetzel gave sermons on hell and purgatory and heaven, and he especially appealed to the consciences of his audience as he pointed out how they could aid their deceased parents in purgatory. Now, stop right there. This is one of the false teachings of the Catholic Church. Uh, They claim that not only is there a heaven, but a hell, there's also a halfway house. Yeah, there, there is something that's called purgatory. And that's where your family goes. They're in purgatory. And they are suffering in the flames. And it is these, these flames that are trying to purify them of their sins. But we're here to offer you an indulgence. It's a piece of paper. And if you will give us enough money, we will sell you an indulgence, and we will write on this piece of paper, your mother's sins are forgiven. Your grandfather's sins are canceled out. And when that occurs, when you give us the money and we give you the indulgence, your loved one will be released from purgatory where they are now suffering, and you are the key for them to go to heaven. You talk about the devil's lies. Well, Tetzel was selling these indulgences, and this is what he would say, and what a con artist he was. Do you not hear the voice of your wailing dead parents and others who say, have mercy upon me? In other words, can't you hear them calling out to you right now from purgatory? Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, because we are in severe punishment and pain. From this you could redeem us with, a, with small alms, and yet you do not want to do so. Open your ears, the father says to the son and the mother to the daughter. We created you. We fed you. We cared for you. We left you with our temporal goods. Why are you so cruel to us? And why are you so harsh that you do not want to save us? That only takes such little. You let us lie in flames so that only slowly do we come to the promised glory. Oh, he could just pray upon the ignorance of the people as they began to throw their money at the Catholic Church. And Tetzel's most famous line was this, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Well, there's a fool born every moment. And they were standing in line to buy these indulgences. Do you know they're still standing in line to buy these indulgences? Well, Martin Luther caught wind of this. And word came back to campus. Martin Luther is not a saved man. He's unregenerate at this point. 
but he can smell a rat a mile off. And he knows that this does not add up. So he takes out a long piece of paper, and he writes out 95 theses, 95 statements of protest against the Catholic Church. And he takes this piece of paper, and he marches to the castle church, and he nails it to the front door of the Catholic Church, uh, of that, yeah, it's a Catholic Church. And by nailing it to the front door, he is protesting the abuses of the church. And that's where the term Protestant comes from, a protest against the false gospel. And by nailing it to the front door of the church, he is inviting public debate. Uh, That served as the community bulletin board. And by posting it there, he is inviting all comers to enter into public disputation with him. He wants to discuss this publicly because this is not right. Now, I don't know if you've ever read the 95 Theses or not. Some of them are quite good. Others are not so good. We must remember that he is still a lost man. God has not yet connected the dots in his mind as to how to come to faith in Christ. But I want to put up on the screen for you just some of these 95 theses so that you can understand. And he nailed them on October 31st, 1517. Number one, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when he said repent, willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. We agree with that. Number two, the word repentance cannot be understood to mean sacramental penance, i.e. confession and satisfaction, which is administered by the priests. He understands they're as sinful as he is. And how are they the mediators of salvation when they themselves need salvation? Number 21, Therefore, those preachers of indulgences are in error, who say that by the Pope's indulgences a man is freed from every penalty and is saved. He understands there is no salvation that is coming through these indulgences. He doesn't know how to be saved, but he knows it's not by them. Number 27, they preach man. In other words, a a man-centered message. They preach men who say that as soon as the penny jingles into the money box, the soul flies out of purgatory. Number 32, they will be considered condemned eternally together with their teachers who believe themselves sure of their salvation because they have letters of pardon. He understands that this is no transaction with God. This is a farce. This is a sham. We would call it today a, a, a shell game. Number 36, every truly repentant Christian has a right to full remission of penalty and guilt, even without letters of pardon. And then number 62, the true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and the grace of God. Well, unknown to Martin Luther, his students took that down. And they set the type, and they printed copies. 
and began to spread them far and wide. Game on. Game on. So overnight, this little monk, this little priest, this little uh, Bible professor is suddenly now the most controversial figure in all of Germany and is calling into account the false teaching of the Catholic Church. He's still unconverted. He is still unsaved. So, this leads now to Martin Luther, regenerated believer. And I want to tell you about how he came to faith in Jesus Christ. It happened in 1519. And he is in the the castle church, which is the main church there in Wittenberg. And there is a huge tower in the Catholic, in this uh, castle church. And he's up in the tower by himself, almost like being in your study. And he has in front of him Romans 1, verse 17. The righteous shall live by faith. And he is meditating on this passage. And he is trying to understand how to be saved. Listen to his testimony. Parts of it we may put up. But I want you to hear his testimony. This is so good. Meanwhile, in that same year, 1519, I had begun interpreting the Psalms once again. Remember, I said the first class he ever taught was the book of Psalms. He now is working his way back to teaching the Psalms in the classroom a second time. And he's a brilliant scholar, and he's translating it out of the original Hebrew. He's one of the few men in all of Europe that, that know he, the Hebrew language. Tyndale will come to Wittenberg and begin to learn the Hebrew language while he is there with Luther at this university. So, he is, he is interpreting the Psalms once again. He said, I felt confident that I was now more experienced, referring to interpreting the Bible, since I had dealt in university courses in St. Paul's letters to the Romans, to the Galatians, and to the Hebrews. I had conceived a burning desire to understand what Paul meant in his letter to the Romans. But thus far, there stood in my way that one word, which is in chapter 1. The justice of God, meaning the righteousness of God, is revealed in it. I hated that word, justice of God righteousness of God, which by the use and custom of all my teachers, I have been taught to understand as referring to a formal or active righteousness, as they call it, that righteousness by which God is righteous and by which He punishes sinners and the unrighteous. I, blameless monk that I was, felt that before God I was a sinner with an extremely troubled conscience. I could not be sure that God was appeased by my satisfaction. I did not love, no, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. In silence, if I did not blaspheme, then certainly I grumbled vehemently and got angry at God. And I said, isn't it enough that we miserable sinners lost for all eternity because of original sin, 
are oppressed by every kind of calamity through the gospel and through the gospel that threatens us with His justice and His wrath. In other words, we're going to hell. Can't God just leave us alone without threatening us every step of the way through life with this gospel? Just let us go to hell without continually threatening us. This is how I was raging with wild and disturbed conscience. I constantly badgered Paul about that spot in Romans 1 and anxiously waited to know what he meant. I meditated day and night on these words until at last, by the mercy of God, now listen to this, I paid attention to the context. Remember, a text without a context is a pretext. The righteousness of God is revealed in it as it is written, the just shall live by faith. I began to understand that in this verse, the justice of God, and by that he means the righteousness of God, is that by which the righteous person lives, and here it is, by a gift of God that is by faith. I began to understand what this verse means, that the righteousness of God is revealed through the gospel, but it is a passive righteousness. By that he means, I'm not active. There's nothing I can do to merit or earn this righteousness. It is a passive righteousness, meaning it must be given to me as a gift. There's nothing I can do to earn it or to be good enough for it. It is a passive righteousness, that is, that by, by which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the just person lives by faith. And then Luther writes, all at once, I felt that I had been born again and had entered into paradise itself through open gates. Immediately, I saw the whole of Scripture in a different light. I ran through the Scriptures from memory and found the other terms had analogous meanings. That is, when I saw the work of God in the Bible, that is what God works in us, the power of God, that by which He makes us powerful, the wisdom of God, that by which He makes us wise, the strength of God, the glory of God. He had been reading the Bible upside down, backwards, in a dark room with His eyes closed. That's a lot to overcome. And once he understood that the righteousness of God is the righteousness that God gives and is received only by faith alone, in that moment the entire Bible came alive. And the entire Bible now he understood. In fact, he goes on to say that this righteousness of God he called it a foreign 
righteousness. An alien righteousness, meaning it's foreign to us as sinners. It's alien to us. It's come down from another planet. It's come down from another realm. It's come down from heaven above, from God to us. Luther was dramatically converted. And as he was dramatically converted, he began to preach two kinds of righteousness. There's man's self-righteousness, and there is God's alien righteousness or foreign righteousness that is given as a gift and received by faith. And Luther said in his sermon, as he began to preach on this, through faith in Christ, therefore Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness. And all that He has becomes ours. Rather, He Himself becomes ours. That we receive Christ Himself, and we receive the righteousness of Christ, and it is all by faith. And Luther began to preach this, and Luther began to stir things up, and Luther began to shake things up, so much so that Rome began to catch word of what Luther is doing. It's killing sales of indulgences, for one thing. I mean, those they're, they're, they've taken a nosedive. So we're going to have to deal with Luther. And so, Rome called for a public debate. Oh, Luther loves public debates. He lives for public debates. And so in Leipzig, Leipzig, Germany, it's where uh, Bach uh, wrote so much of his music. There was what was called the Leipzig Disputation. And this is under Bold Debater. And in 1520, Luther now steps onto more of a national scene, and he will debate Johann Eck. It's a 20 day debate. From June 27th to July 16th, 1519, there is another man who is sympathetic with reform, uh, with uh, Luther, Karlsdat, um, who is there to begin the debate, and Luther shows up a couple days late, coming from Wittenberg. And when Luther steps into this disputation, he just takes over. He has a command of the Scripture. He has a knowledge of the Scripture. He has a mastery of the Scripture. He has a knowledge of church history. He has a knowledge of the church fathers. He has a knowledge of the Roman Catholic Church. He's been a monk. He's been a priest. He's playing with a full deck. He has everything at his disposal. And as Luther steps into this debate, He said some of the most controversial things that anyone on planet earth could have said at this time. Luther said, I assert that a council, referring to a church council that would draft a doctrinal statement, I assert that a council has sometimes erred and may sometimes err. No one's had the audacity to say this. Everyone just capitulates to the church. There are no Bereans who are testing with the Scripture whether this be so or not. 
Luther says, nor has a council authority to establish new articles of faith. In other words, if it's not in the Bible, we're not believing it. Now, I don't know where you've come up with this purgatory stuff and all of the rest, but if it's not in the Bible, we're not going to believe it. He goes on to say, councils have contradicted each other. In other words, they've been wrong many a time. And then he said this famous line, a simple layman, armed with Scripture, is to be believed above Pope or councils. In other words, all you need is a MacArthur study Bible. (laughs) And you know more than the Pope knows in Rome. He said, neither the church nor the Pope can establish articles of faith. In other words, it better come from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or we're not accepting it. These must come from Scripture. For the sake of Scripture, we should reject Pope and counsel. No one's ever said this and lived. John Huss had said it, and he died a martyr's death. Well, Luther won that round. He's growing in his knowledge of the Scripture. In 1520, this same year, he writes three blockbuster treatises. Number one, he writes a treatise entitled Address to the Christian Nobility of the German Nation. Now, that's a long title, and it's simply at the heart of what he wrote. He went for the juggler vein of the church. He set forth the priesthood of all believers. The Catholic Church said, no, there's only a small little group who are priests, and everyone else is is outside the grace of God, and they need to come to us and have little portions. And Luther with this says, no, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have access to the Father's throne, and you are a priest unto God. He wrote a second treatise. And the title of this was, The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. They got the drift. And the church in the 16th century, Luther has said, is just like the people of God who were carted off into Babylonian captivity because of their idolatry and because of their unbelief. And that is exactly where the church is. And Luther attacked the mass, and he said there is no efficacy in the mass. And then he writes a third treatise entitled Freedom of the Christian Man, in which he sets forth the doctrine of sola fide, justification by faith alone. Well, Luther is now begging for an even larger disputation. In the next year, or excuse me, before we get to that, as a result of this, these three books, the Pope issues a papal bull. A papal bull is a letter of excommunication that is sealed with a a red seal, which in in the original means bulla, and it is a condemnation of Martin Luther as a heretic. 
and it begins with this sentence. Arise, O Lord, this is what the Pope writes, Arise, O Lord, and judge your cause. A wild boar has invaded your vineyard. And he calls Martin Luther a wild boar that has come into the vineyard of God and is, is, is trashing the field. In this papal bull, 41 of Martin Luther's beliefs are judged to be heretical and scandalous and false and offensive and seductive and repugnant, close quote. And without flinching, Luther responded, this bull condemns Christ Himself. He understood that the attack on Him was in reality an attack upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So you know what Luther did? Luther took this bull, he gathered all of his students together out of the classroom, he goes to the outskirts of town, and he publicly burns it. This is what I think of the Pope's excommunication letters. An historian, Thomas Lindsay, writes, it is scarcely possible for us in the 20th century, or us in the 21st, to imagine the thrill that went through Germany and indeed through all Europe when the news spread that a poor monk had burned the Pope's bull. And that's no bull. <laughs> Listen, men whom God used greatly in history and women as well, they are as bold as a lion. And they stand up for the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Meek, mild, timid people do not shake up continents. It is bold believers filled with the Holy Spirit and have deep convictions in the truth of the Word of God. Well, this now leads to defiant stalwart. Martin Luther in 1521, just remember that date, 1521. Luther is summoned to the Diet of Worms. And that does not mean he now begins to eat worms. The Diet of Worms is a, is a gathering together of the ecclesiastical hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church. And at the Diet of Worms is the Holy Emperor of the Roman Empire, Charles V. So it is, it is as though he is standing before the President the Supreme Court, and the Senate. And Luther, as he travels from Wittenberg to Worms, he preaches his way from city to city to city and has been called one of the greatest preaching tours in all of church history. He, he doesn't go slithering into town, um, bent over like a question mark. He arrives in town standing erect like an exclamation point. And as he walks in, he assumes that this will be a public debate and that he can make his points and surely the church will repent and change their mind and see the truth of the Word of God. He has little idea that this is a heresy trial. So, a different eck is the prosecuting attorney. He is the Archbishop of, of Trier. And Eck says this. I want you to hear this quote. Martin Luther, 
How can you assume that you are the only one to understand Scripture? Would you put your judgment above that of so many famous men and claim that you know more than all they? You have no right to call into question the most holy orthodox faith instituted by Christ, proclaimed by the apostles, sealed by the blood of martyrs, confirmed by the sacred councils, defined by the church in which all of our fathers believed unto death, and gave to us as an inheritance in which now we are forbidden by the Pope and the Emperor to discuss, lest there be no end to debate. In other words, who do you think you are, Martin Luther, to stand against a thousand years of tradition of the church? Eck then asked him two questions. There was a table in the middle of the room Luther stood on one side, X stood on the other. Between them are, are all of Luther's writings. Two questions. Number one, Luther, are these your books? Number two, will you repent? Luther understood the enormity of the moment. He understood that how he answered this would have a far-reaching effect. And he understood that his neck was on the line. He asked for the night and to appear the next morning. Not because there was any doubt, but because he felt the enormity of the weight upon his shoulders. Luther appears the next morning. Charles V, Eck, the ecclesiastical hierarchy of the day. Martin Luther, are these your books? And will you repent? And Luther says, yes, these are my books. And I cannot repent because they are full of the Word of God. And if I repent of my books, I will repent of the very Scripture itself. Because found in my books are the Word of God. And Luther gave now this famous statement, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures, or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound to the Scriptures that I have quoted and my conscience is held captive by the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I can do no other. Here I stand. God, help me. That was the shot that was fired and heard around the world. And the ripple effects of that bold statement would set in motion the Protestant Reformation that would sweep through Europe, would sweep through England, would sweep through Scotland. And when ships came onto our shore, they brought with them this Protestant truth of a commitment to the Word of God. 
Well, the axe had been laid to the root. Charles V condemned Luther as a heretic and said to Luther, you have 21 days to set your affairs in order. Because he now has been condemned as a heretic by the church and his life will be taken. So Luther leaves Worms and heads back to Wittenberg. And on the way, he is kidnapped. And a bag is put over his head. And he is taken where he cannot see. And it is his friends who know if he goes back to Wittenberg, he is such a marked man, he will die within days. They take him to the Wartburg Castle. And there he will be for almost a year in seclusion, hiding by the seclusion of his friends. And Martin Luther is such an industrious man. He is such an active man. He is a doer. He is not a sitter. He is not a spectator. He is a driver. He is an accomplisher. And as he is sitting in the Wartburg Castle, there has to be something for him to do. So he says, bring me the manuscripts of the New Testament. And by the strange providence of God, in 1516, 1516, there was pulled together by Erasmus for the first time the manuscripts of the New Testament from the, from the Greek, copies of the original. And they bring them to Luther. And Luther sits in this castle and he translates into the German language the New Testament. At this point, there will be no turning back for the Reformation. Once you put a Bible into the hands of people and they can read for themselves and they understand we have been lied to for a thousand years, and when they understand that the way of salvation is through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ who died upon Calvary's cross, bearing the sins of many and suffering on behalf of sinners, that He might pay in full the full wages of their sin and by His death appease the righteous anger of God such that there is now therefore no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. And by the shedding of His blood, that He would reconcile holy God and sinful man and bring them together through the blood of His cross, and that through His death He would redeem sinners out of the slave market of sin. There's no going back for the people. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. So, Martin Luther translates the Bible into the German language, it is released September 21st, 1522. 
It is known as the September Bible because it is released in September, and it will bring the Word of God to the German people. This begins to spread like wildfire. The people now can purchase on the black market a copy of the Bible for themselves. Families can gather in homes, and the dad can read the Word of God to the family, and they come to faith in Christ, and there is this great movement that is going on. After Luther is, is released by his friends from the Wartburg Castle, people began to ask Luther, Luther this question. How is it that you have started the Reformation? How is it that you have shaken the very foundations of Rome? How is it that you have set Europe on fire? How is it that you have turned everything upside down on his head and people now are no longer interested in religious superstitions and these old wives' tales, but want the truth of the Word of God? Luther, how did you do it? This is what he said. I simply taught, preached, wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then while I slept, the Word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince and never an emperor inflicted so much damage upon it. I did nothing. The Word did it all. That is the genius of the Protestant Reformation. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, that it is the truth of the Word of God as it is read, as it is taught, as it is preached, as it is believed, and as it is lived, that is what the entire Reformation was about, and it led to a recovery of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, Luther began to preach there in Wittenberg. He was a powerful preacher of the Word of God. He preached some 7,000 sermons, 200 sermons per year. That's an average of four a week, or one sermon every other day. He was a preaching machine. He wrote. He did all that he could do to get the Word of God out. There is so much that, that I want to say about the Reformation. Let me ask you a question. What time is it? I don't even know what time it is. All right, all right. Thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll keep going. All right, let me tell you the next great thing that happened with Luther. I mean, he, he is a one-man SWAT team. He is just unleashed upon Germany. You remember Erasmus? I talked about Erasmus. Erasmus was the leading humanist of the day. Erasmus was a humanistic scholar. Erasmus was the one who had compiled all the Greek uh, manuscripts in various monasteries from around uh, Europe and compiled them into a Greek New Testament with a parallel uh, Latin version right next to it. Erasmus was an unsaved man. Erasmus did not know the Lord. He was just in love with literature, and the Bible was the best literature he had ever read. Erasmus hated the preaching of the sovereignty of God in salvation. It was repugnant to him. 
it made no sense to him that salvation is of the Lord entirely and completely, that man makes no contribution whatsoever. And he had heard enough and read enough about Martin Luther's uh, understanding that salvation is entirely of God, that God has chosen His elect before the foundation of the world, that God sent His Son into the world to die for the elect, that God has sent the Holy Spirit into the world to convict and call and regenerate these elect, and that it is the Holy Spirit of God who gives the gift of, of saving faith and repentance, and that it is God who births sinners into His kingdom. Erasmus wrote a book entitled, Diatribe on the Freedom of the Will, because he understood that Martin Luther believed in the bondage of the will. This is a very key point for us to discuss tonight. Martin Luther understood that no man has free will. He has free will to go to hell, but none to go to heaven that every man's will is held captive by sin and by Satan. And so Erasmus writes this diatribe on the freedom of the will. It is a public attack on Martin Luther. Here's 1524. In which he goes after Luther in this public forum, the leading intellect of the day. Luther doesn't even respond. Luther doesn't answer. People think that Erasmus has actually shut up Luther. No one's ever shut up Luther. And Luther waits and he waits. And then he writes his magnum opus. The Bondage of the Will. If you've never read Bondage of the Will you need to buy a copy tonight over at the book table. It is so easy to read. It is so biblical. It is so persuasive. It is so convincing. And Martin Luther responds to Erasmus's freedom of the will with his book, The Bondage of the Will. And he begins this way. Erasmus, the reason I have waited so long to respond in print is I kept waiting for a better argument that you would present. <laughs> but I am now left to believe that this is the best that you can do. <laughs> and he said, with your brilliant intellect, with your brilliant vocabulary, with your command of the language, and your rotten theology... He said, it is like serving dung on a silver platter. Unquote. <laughs> and Martin Luther goes for the juggler vein. And Martin Luther strips every argument that Erasmus makes. And Martin Luther says, I have so many generals with so many soldiers at my disposal to rout you in this contest. All I need are two generals to call to the forefront, to the battlefield. I call now John and Paul. 
And with that, Martin Luther opens up the Gospel of John and teaches the doctrines of grace. And then he takes the book of Romans, and he takes the book of Galatians, and he just goes chapter by chapter and unleashes the force of the Word of God upon Erasmus to show him the bankruptcy of his understanding that man has a free will when he is born in sin and bound in sin, when he is blind and cannot see, when he is deaf and cannot hear, when he is spiritually dead and trespasses in sin. What can a dead man do? I remember when I was in seminary and the day the professor asked that question, what can a dead man do? And a student from the back row yelled out, stink. (laughs) A dead man has no free will. A dead man is unresponsive to the things of God. That is why... God must initiate the work of salvation. That is why God must raise the sinner from the grave of sin and enable the sinner to believe upon Christ. In fact, God must give the gift of faith before the sinner can even believe. That is why Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves... It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. All of the Reformers were strong predestinarians. All of the Reformers were strong in the doctrines of grace. They had to be because they were strong in the Bible. And when you preach the Bible and study the Bible and learn from the Bible, there is no other position to which one may come. And so, Martin Luther sets forth this extraordinary presentation. Let me just give you one quote from Bondage to the Will. He says, No man can be thoroughly humbled until he knows that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, devices, endeavors, even beyond his will, and works and depends entirely on the choice, will, and work of another, namely, of God alone. For as long as man is persuaded that he himself can do even the least thing toward his salvation, he he retains some self-confidence and does not altogether despair of himself, and therefore is not humbled before God, but presumes that there is, or at least hopes or desires that there may be, some place, some time, some work for him by which he may at length attain to salvation. But when a man has no doubt that everything depends on the will of God, which he completely desp- then he completely despairs of himself and chooses nothing for himself but waits for God to work. Then he has come close to grace and can be saved. Well, surely we here tonight have come to understand that salvation is of the Lord, that all things are from Him and through Him and to Him. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, just quickly to wrap this up, he was a devoted husband. 
And Martin Luther became married at age 42. He married uh, a Catholic nun, Catherine von Bora. He married her just to upset the Pope, <laughs> is what he said. He said, this feels so good to, to marry her, and especially with her being a nun. And he said, I married her to make the devils weep and make the angels laugh. And he had a wonderful marriage. They had three boys and three girls. And there were so many people who wanted to spend time with Luther. He had a personality larger than Germany. That all the students just wanted to hang out at his house. And there were now people traveling to come see him from all around Europe. And from overseas, they were coming from Scotland, they were coming from England. William Tyndale came from England to, to sit at his feet. Patrick Hamilton came from, from Scotland that we know of. That Elector John the Steadfast gave Luther the monastery. On the first four alone are 40 rooms. It's now the museum in Wittenberg. You can go through his house, and they've converted it into a, a, a museum. And up on the second floor is where he would have dinner, and he would just invite everybody for dinner. The more, the merrier. And they would just discuss the Bible and discuss theology, and his students could ask him whatever question they wanted, and church leaders from around Europe would come. It was the place to be. And someone began to write down all these dinner conversations and they are published now in what is known as Table Talk. And those, the Table Talks are the dinner conversations about God and the Bible and Christ and the Christian life and the church and discipleship and ministry. These were just the dinner conversations that Martin Luther was conversant in. He became a hymn writer. Martin Luther personally changed the worship service. Uh, before the Reformation, the, the, the church service was awful. It, it had like 48 parts to it. Stand up, sit down, kneel, genuflex, candles, smelling, uh, Latin, no sermon, homily, just... It was just a mishmash of nothing. And the Reformed worship service became marked by the centrality of the preaching of the Word of God, by the simplicity of the order, and now by the singing of theology. And in 1527, Martin Luther wrote what has become the church's fight song. A mighty fortress is our God. And the backdrop to this writing of this is very interesting because it was the most difficult and demanding and discouraging year of Martin Luther's life. He did not live an easy life. And in 1527, the weight of the entire Reformation, he felt, was on his shoulders. And the Black Plague was spreading through Europe. 
and it was spreading through Saxony. And people were dying by the droves. And Martin Luther had to make a very difficult decision. Will I leave Wittenberg for my own safety, or will I stay and minister to those who choose to stay? Martin Luther made the very difficult decision that he would stay. And he converted his home into what became virtually a hospital. And there were times at dinner that he would faint. And his students would have to gather him up and carry him to the bedroom and just drop him in bed. His own son, two years old, came down with the plague. And it looked as if there was no hope. And Martin Luther had bouts of despair. He wrote to Philip Melanchthon in this year, and he said, I spent more than a week in death and in hell. My entire body was in pain, and I still tremble, completely abandoned by Christ. I labored under the vacillations and storms of desperation and blasphemy against God, but through the prayers of the saints, God began to have mercy on me and pulled my soul from the inferno below. Martin Luther clung to the Psalms, and he came to Psalm 46, and it so ministered to his own heart, he, he rewrote the words of Psalm 46, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. He understood he was in the midst of spiritual warfare. And as he wrote this hymn, he was not sitting at Starbucks under contract as a recording artist, trying to come up with a tune. He was in the very valley of the shadow of death, clinging to God. And he wrote this great hymn that has become now one of the most famous, if not the most famous hymns of the faith. He wrote many other hymns, and the church began to sing. And Luther said, other than the preaching of the Word of God and the teaching of the Word of God, the greatest blessing of the church is to sing the Word of God and that music is the great blessing of God upon His people, and that Christianity is distinguished as a, as a singing people who give glory to God and sing from the depths of their soul. He was the Protestant leader. Time doesn't really afford us the opportunity to walk through how he led in many of the bouts and debates and discussions over the Word of God that transpired, but I want to come to the very end. The faithful warrior. He dies in 1546. He goes back to the very town in which he was born in order to settle a dispute between two brothers over their property and estate. 
and he comes to preach the last sermon of his life. And Luther says, he addresses the subject that if you have the Word of God, you have everything that you need to live your Christian life. And that there are those who are still wanting to look to other things, to relics, to superstitions. And he says, in times past, we would have run to the ends of the world if we had known of a place where we could have heard God speak. If you knew that you would hear the voice of God in San Diego, we would all just leave this room right now, get in cars, and we would drive to San Diego. If we thought we could actually hear the audible voice of God, would we not? And that is the point Luther was making. That in times past, when God did speak out of the clouds, when God did speak to the prophets and did speak to the apostles, we would have gone anywhere in the world just to hear God speak. But he says, but now we hear God speak every day in sermons. And by that he means the sermons that preach the Word of God and the truth of the Word of God. We hear God's voice constantly speaking to us. He then said, if you do not want God to speak to you every day at your home, in your house, or in your church, then be wise. And he says this with sarcasm. Then be wise and look for something else. And trier is our Lord God's coat. In Achan are Joseph's pants. And our blessed lady's milk. Go there, squander your money. Buy indulgence and the Pope's secondhand junk. Those are valuable things. You have to go far for those things and spend a lot of money. Leave home. Leave house and home standing idle. But are not we stupid and crazy and blinded and possessed by the devil? We should listen to God's Word, which tells us that He is our schoolmaster, and we should have nothing to do with Joseph's pants. Amen to that. I'm not pulling your leg. <laughs> he said we should have nothing to do with the Pope's juggling tricks, and he ends his life with this last sermon on the sufficiency of the Word of God, the primacy of the Word of God, the authority of the Word of God, the power of the Word of God, that if we have the Word of God, we can hear the voice of God speak to us wherever we are, and that we do not have to go off on pilgrimages, and we do not have to go off in search of the Pope's junk but that we can hear God speak to us every moment of every day as He speaks through the living and abiding Word of God. Calvin said, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And so Luther, as he realized he was dying, wrote his last will and testament. And he begins his last will and testament with these words. 
I am well known in heaven and on earth and in hell itself. He took confidence that his life had been so lived that not only is his name known in heaven, but his name is known in hell. That he has been a force for God. That he has been a battering ram for the kingdom of God. And that he has been a force for God while here upon the earth. I am well known in heaven and on earth and in hell. And as he came to his last moments, they said, do you want to die standing firm on Christ in the doctrine you have taught? And he said, yes, we are beggars. This is true. And Luther died in Eisleben, the very town in which he was born in strange providence. They gathered up his Bible, excuse me, they gathered up his, bi- his body, and they traveled all the way to Wittenberg with it. And they brought it to the castle church. And they came to the pulpit where he had preached 7,000 sermons. And they dug his grave under the pulpit. And they buried him in the church at the very place where he had stood and so boldly preached the Word of God. His wife, Katie, said, he has done great things, not just for a city or a single land, but for the whole world. He could have done nothing greater for the world than what he did. For he brought the church back to the Word of God. And in so doing, he recovered the one true saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And he carried it into the highways, into the byways, and he stood on the housetops, and he declared the truth that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I trust that you've come to believe the one true saving gospel of Christ. In reality, the the gospel is Christ. It's the person and work of Christ. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Paul writes, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. There is salvation in no other name, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. As I bring this first session to close, I want to ask you, have you ever believed upon Christ? Have you ever turned to Christ? Have you ever realized that you cannot save yourself, you cannot even contribute to your own salvation? It's not until you come to the end of yourself and humble yourself beneath the Lordship of Christ and repent of your sins and 
turn to God through Jesus Christ, can you be saved? If you've never believed upon Christ, I call you tonight to commit your life to Him, to entrust all that you are to the Lord Jesus Christ, to be born again tonight. The gates of paradise are swung wide open tonight. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Come to Christ, believe upon Christ, tell Him what a sinner you are. He's come to save not the righteous, but the unrighteous. The physician has not come for those who are well, but for those who are sick. He loves to receive sinners. He's the friend of sinners. Tell him what a sinner you are. Commit your life to him. And him who comes unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Boast not yourself of tomorrow, for you know not what a day may bring forth. As we bring this session to a close, if you've never received Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, I call you to humble yourself and to give your life to Him. Believe upon Him. Submit your life to Him. Surrender. Commit. Trust. Rest. Believe and you will receive what Martin Luther received, Christ himself and the very righteousness of Christ. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Men Who Rock the World. If you want to follow us on social media, I can be found at Dr. Stephen J. Lawson or at onepassion.org. Please join me next week for the next episode of Men Who Rock the World.